Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. This week, uh, our guest is Booger McFarland. He is the analyst on Monday Night Football, and now part of a two-person booth with Joe Tessitore. Last year, of course, Booger McFarland spent much of his year on the, the Boogermobile uh, until the end of the season when he was in the booth. And now it is McFarland and Tessator, and it should be really, really interesting to see how they do. Um, we had a really, really good conversation on uh, what last year was like for him, how he viewed the criticism of the product, what management's talked about regarding him and Joe going forward, his thoughts on Andrew Luck and how that story was covered in the media, the value of having... Uh, Super Bowl rings, and then a really, a really interesting discussion on why so many in broadcasting hire big names and are seduced by big names, um, as opposed to maybe some people who test better or um, who have proven to be grinders who could be really good in broadcasting. So I think you're going to find it a very, very interesting conversation uh, as Booker McFarlane is about to start on Monday Night Football, a little under 45 minutes, I think. And so coming up. Booger McFarland of ESPN's Monday Night Football. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, as I said at the top, McFarland is the Monday Night Football analyst for ESPN. Uh, he previously worked prior to his Monday Night Football gig uh, for the SEC Network as a college football analyst. In addition to Monday Night Football, you also can hear him on SportsCenter, Get Up, ESPN Radio, probably some other ESPN platforms. I have not named Booger McFarland joins us today on the sports media podcast. Thanks for joining me, Booger. Hey man, glad to be here. I've been a fan for a long time and uh, we've been trying to do this for a while. So glad it happened. Good, nice reading on the cue card saying you're a fan. I appreciate that. It was well read. Nice job. there. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to start off. I have a lot of questions as you can imagine about Monday night football, but Here's where I want to start. Um, how confident were you that you would return to the booth upon the conclusion of last year? You know, I was pretty confident. You know, talking to the management, they had given us, um, you know, every inclination that we were going to be back. Uh, we were, you know, told throughout the season um, that, you know, obviously our job was to improve from game one to game eight, game eight to game 16. And I, I think that, we did that. I think the biggest thing for us when things really came together is when I went from the quote unquote booger mobile to the booth. I, I think if you look at our last couple of broadcasts, the one we did in Oakland with Denver and Oakland, and then the playoff game with Houston and Indianapolis when Jason and I were in a booth together, you know, you started to hear what I think ESPN initially wanted, which was the conversation, the back and forth, offense, defense two guys talking ball with Tessator kind of, you know, playing the traffic cop. And I think that's what we finally got to at the end of the season. So once the season ended, I was very confident, um, especially after I went back and listened 
because that's what I always do. I go back and before I watch the broadcast, I listen to it. Because most people listen to us talk as they watch the game. That's how you watch Monday Night Football. They don't really see our faces. And so when I listened to it, I thought, man, this sounds really, really good. And so I was very confident um, once I went back and watched it and based on everything that I've been told. Booger, did you, during the early parts of Monday Night Football, I thought you were, you know, listen, you were a good soldier. Uh, they they sort of created something that they thought was going to be unique and different. They put you on this crane and never been done before, certainly on Monday Night Football, essentially never in at the levels of NFL broadcasting. Um, how 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 difficult an adjustment was that for you, given that you had had previous experience in traditional broadcasting roles in a booth, in a studio, et cetera? Well, it, it was very difficult. You know, I, I've always said, though, that, you know, if you give me an opportunity, I'll make the best of it. You know, I, I think people, you know, I had to give ESPN a lot of credit for being innovative and trying to do something new. Um, you know, it was definitely a shock to me as the, as the role was explained to me, because when we initially auditioned, Jason and I, we did it separately and it was going to be in the booth. And then we did it together and we were in the booth. And then when things kind of came together, they said, Hey, we're going to do something unique. We want you to be the first ever field analyst. And, you know, it kind of took me a minute to kind of wrap my head around it because the only field analyst I'd ever seen or heard of was Tony Saragusa. And I know I wanted no part of that because I didn't want to be a sideshow. What I wanted to do was talk about football because I think I have a, a, a very uh, high IQ when it comes to football. And so, you know, as the role was explained and, hey, you're not going to be Sarah Goose, so we're not going down that road. We want to create a three-man conversation between you, Joe, and Jason. Um, we want to give you an open mic. And basically what that means for your audience is I talk when I want to talk. And it's not somebody's cueing me to talk, somebody's telling me to talk. I was given the, the opportunity to talk when I wanted to talk, and I had to use my description to go in again and get out. That way the broadcast didn't sound as if we were talking over each other. And so as, as the role was, was kind of given to me and I, it was explained and I kind of got into it, it still was very difficult. And it's no different than I'll explain it where everyone can understand it. I was given a mechanism essentially kin to FaceTime. And so I could see Jason and Joe real time on a screen that was in front of me. And, you know, those of us that have kids, you know how that beats, uh, you know, being long distance or being away from your children. It gives you that physical, almost like that physical contact where you can see them and you can understand when they're about to talk and when they're not, but it's still not the same as being in the same room with them. And so that was an adjustment that had to be made by me. Um, but listen, I knew what I was getting into once the role was explained. And I always live by this. I, I just wanted to get my foot in the door in professional football because I felt like it was a new challenge for me. Was it the role that I initially auditioned for? No. Uh, was I satisfied with the role? Uh, at the present time, yes, I was. Uh, however, it was definitely more difficult than what we did the last two games of the year, which is why I often go back to that because the last two games of the year when we were in the booth together, that's kind of when the light came on and everybody's like, well, damn, how come we didn't do this uh, in the beginning? Because what we wanted, we wound up getting, we just got to it probably three and a half, four months too late. Booger, how did you view the season-long criticism of Monday Night Football? Um, specifically sort of the broadcast itself and then specifically Jason Witten 
as well? You know, criticism has always been a part of the job. You know, for me, I've been in the media now for five, six years. And when you're in the studio, you know, you're paid to give opinions about different teams. And uh, inevitably, what's going to happen when you're in a studio role, uh, half the audience loves you, half the audience hates you. So I've been accustomed to the criticism, and that doesn't bother me whatsoever. And I can only speak for myself when it comes to that. Um, I've, you know, I like giving opinions. And usually when you give an opinion, you're going to piss off half the audience anyway. So that's not a problem with me. As far as being accustomed to it um, and have to deal with it throughout the season, that part doesn't bother me either. You know, I, I understand what I got into when I got into this business of talking uh, in front of millions of people, giving opinions in front of millions of people. I think what happens publicly and social media-wise, anytime there's something new, um, we don't really like change in, in America much. We, like, we don't like things that we are accustomed to doing a certain way. We don't like them to change. You couple that with the fact that uh, Jason's best friend, Tony Romo, was, was having a lot of success individually in, in a single booth with Jim Nance and not, you know, not a three-man booth. And, and I think those two factors led to a lot of criticism and a lot of chatter, uh, both good and bad in some areas, uh, that we received. But as far as how I took it and how I handled it and how it affected me, doesn't bother me. Like I've been dealing with criticism for a long time, and 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 I think uh, I'm not going to go out on the limb, but I think when I speak for everyone on the team, you know, when you play a, a professional sport and it's viewed by the public, I think you have to become um, very, I don't know, like very thick-skinned when it comes to criticism because it's going to happen. Now, you know, when you're winning as a football team and you're on a team, you don't get a lot of criticism. But when you're quote-unquote winning or losing in the media, either way you're going to get a ton of it. So it doesn't really bother me, Richard, man. I, I've been used to it. Um, I'm a big boy. I, I grew up in Louisiana, man. Um, having criticism thrown my way is probably like 100th on the list of, of tough things I've had to deal with in my life. The uh, I appreciate that answer, uh, and, and thank you for that. In terms of um... – Booger, in terms of the switch from sort of doing or working at the SEC Network to being on the Monday Night Football broadcast, can you give my listeners just a sense of, you know, one of the things about the job that you have is there's only four of them. You know, there's only sort of four what I would consider kind of A analyst chairs, um, you know, that exist. Obviously, you know, there's Aikman. You mentioned Romo. There's Collinsworth. And then there's whoever's sitting in the Monday Night Football analyst chair. In this case, it's... It's you. So you know the bigness of it. And I wonder if you could just sort of give people who are listening to this a sense of just how big it is or how different it is from just other college football assignments that you've had or other broadcast assignments that you've had. Well, here's the way I would describe it. Um, the NFL and collegiate football is, are so different. One, I think you have to look at it from a fan perspective. Uh, college football is about passion, tradition. It's about... Uh, the school, it's about the name on the helmet, not necessarily the name on the jersey, uh, all those things. The NFL is a big money business, okay? It is about the dollar sign, and it's about the owners, and it's about the name on the back of the jersey. So I think that's number one. I think when you go a, a certain level for me, you know, coming from college football where, uh, and, and this is kind of a plus, you know, when you when you're dealing college football, you're dealing with 
with amateurs. And anytime you deal with amateurs, you have to watch what you say and how you critique and how you analyze them. Whereas in professional football, I'm dealing with grown men. So when I talk to grown men, when I talk about grown men, when I talk about the sport of professional football, it's actually a lot easier for me coming from college to pro football because of that. Because now I get to talk and critique and give praise or criticize grown men. So that part of it's easier. As far as being in the booth, you know, I only called a couple of games, uh, I think I want to say two, probably like five games in college. And all those games were uh, with someone, either with Mac Brown or Joy Galloway. And so now you flip that over and you come to the National Football League and I worked with Jason last year and now you fast forward to this year. This is the first opportunity that I've had to really share how I see the game through my eyes. And for me, man, that is like got me so pumped and so jacked up because, you know, the perception in America or the perception in professional sports, especially football, is that we view the game through usually offensive players' eyes, i.e. the quarterback, because we're so fascinated with the quarterback and how the quarterback sees the game. And if, if a team doesn't have a quarterback, they don't have anything, which I get it. That's partially true. But there's so many more nuances to the game of football and how every player sees it that I, I'm, I'm very excited to be able to share that. And I've never been able to do that before, not in college, uh, not last year, but now I finally get the opportunity to do that through my eyes. And I think those are like the little nuances that are different from college to pro, from being in a college two-man booth to pro, being in a college three-man booth to, uh, to an NFL three-man booth to now being uh, in the chair alone to work with Joe. And so those are the things that, that excite me. And there'll be little nuances that I'm going to see and how I see the game differently. And I think that's that's what excites me because I'm very straightforward, very direct in how I see the game. And, and, and hopefully everyone that listens this year and, and tunes in will enjoy how I see it because ultimately that's how a network broadcasts the game. CBS does the game through Romo's eyes. NBC uh, does the game and shoots the game through Collinsworth's eyes. And the same for Fox through Aikman's eyes. Like the network that you're working for, they are going to see the game and broadcast the game, and they're going to cut the cameras how the analyst sees the game. And that really, really excites me because I've never had that before. Yeah, I think that's well said, and that is absolutely correct. On that end, Booger, and you're well aware of this, if you haven't been asked this question, it's certainly going to be coming anyway. One of the things for you in your position is that there always is going to be a high-profile person who's retiring, particularly a quarterback, particularly somebody uh, as good as your NFL career was who had a better career than you, whether it's Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck coming down the road, Drew Brees, Phillip Rivers. How do you view uh, your employer's potential interest in somebody who's really high profile? Because maybe outside of Tony Romo, that's probably going to happen for for all of you guys, and particularly at Monday Night Football – given that there's been a lot of transition in terms of the talent? Well, I, I think I look at Richard no different than when I was playing. You know, I, I was drafted, and I was that first-round pick who came in and took Brad Culpepper's job uh, my second year. And I, I kind of knew what that was like. Everyone was kind of waiting. They drafted you. I was next in line. And so going through that transition from my second year at Tampa – 
um, where I became the star next to Warren Sapp. And then now, you know, you transition to a, a role where the team not, not only was drafting people to take my job, they were they traded me away, and the same thing happened in in, in, uh, in Indianapolis. They cut me, and so all that being said, your employer, when I was in the National Football League, or my employee was always looking to find the next guy, find the next person, and I approached this profession the same way. I, I'm not oblivious to the fact that when you look at the, as you call it, the, the four chairs, um, I'm the only defensive guy out of the four. I'm not oblivious to that. I'm oblivious to the fact that America loves quarterbacks. I'm not oblivious to the fact that um, there are going to be other guys coming down the road who fit the standard perceptive role. I'm not oblivious to that, but here's the way I handle it. I'm very confident in what I do and very confident in how I do it. Um, I, I've never lacked that. And, and, and the reason being is because of A, I've never been given anything in my life. B, I earned everything that I got. And, and C, when I got it, especially now, I understand how to work and, and how to keep it. And I'm going to do this role and I'm going to be the best booger. Like, I'm not going to try to be anybody else. And I think that'll be good enough. And if it's not, then you know what? Oh, well, because I really, really feel confident in, A, what Jimmy Pitaro and Stephanie Drew and Lee Fitting and Connor Shell have empowered me to do, which is we hired you to be you. We hired you to be Booger. You enjoyed the relationship. Let's have a conversation. Let's allow 15 million people every Monday night to eavesdrop on how you see the game. And I'm very confident in, A, the opportunity that I've been given, and, and be my ability to do the job. And, and I think that is, that is what gives me, um, not only gives me great confidence, but puts a smile on my face because of the position that I've been put in. Booger, I want to ask you about how you started in the sports media profession. You, you got traded to the Colts. You had a knee injury that pretty much ended your NFL career. And I know that at a certain point you were doing local radio in the Tampa area. What I'm not sure is if there was something that you did before that and then after your professional football career ended, but how did this journey begin for you? How did you ultimately uh, make your way into the sports media to get that first job, which so many times is the hardest job to get? Yeah, it's kind of funny. You know, uh, I, I did a player show when I was playing for the Bucks, and I befriended the producer and, you know, I would come in and, you know, do a show once a week and kind of liked it. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't the greatest at it, but I enjoyed the conversation with the host, a guy named Steve Dooman. And, you know, I didn't know anything about radio or broadcasting, but I just enjoyed talking to another guy about football and sports, man. And when I got to Indy, I didn't do any more player shows, but I still remembered. And so when I retired at 30, for the next four years, I got married, started a family, um, and, and kind of moved on with life. And finally one day, you know, 34, 35 years old, I'm like, man, what am I going to do? It's time to get a job. You know, it's time to figure out what you're going to do next. And the same producer that produced my player show that I would come in once a week called me. And he said, there's a new opportunity that's going to happen in the next six months I think you'd be good for and, you know, I had to sign a non-disclosure or whatever. And he told me, he said, CBS Sports is starting an all-FM sports station in Tampa. And, dude, I think you'd be great for afternoon drive. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I go audition. 
I get the job. Uh, my initial co-host was a guy named Todd Wright. He used to do uh, all night for ESPN. And yep. it was just me and Todd Wright from two to six. And, you know, Todd Wright and I didn't last long. However, it forced me to learn more about other things than just football. So I had to learn about the hockey, uh, hockey and, the, and the red line and the blue line and offsides and special teams and hockey. You know, I grew up in Louisiana, man. We didn't play hockey in Louisiana, but I had to learn it. Um, I, I didn't teach about baseball. So now I got to learn, you know, Joe Madden was here. So I got to learn about baseball and all the quirkiness that Joe Madden uh, uses when he manages a game. And over the next couple of years, as I, as I got a couple of different hosts, went from Ty Wright to Rich Herrera to Mark Ryan. Um, I had to learn and really, really work. I did several shows by myself where I did afternoon drive from three to seven, and it's just me and a microphone. It really forced me to, A, study and work hard, B, understand how to be interesting when it's just your voice on the radio, and then C, it really gave me a lot of practice. And then one day, man, uh, probably about halfway through, um, I guess it was should have probably was probably halfway through 2013. I get a call from Patrick Donaher, who was in the talent office at ESPN. And normally I don't answer the phone when I'm on the radio, but it was a commercial break, and I was waiting on Ross Tucker to call to do an interview. And I saw this strange area code, and I answered. And he said, "Hey, this is Patrick, uh, ESPN talent office." I've been listening via the internet the last couple of weeks, and we have a new venture that we think you may be great for. I'm like, okay, that's great, but I got about 30 seconds left before I got to get back on the air. He's like, yeah, I know. Uh, can we talk after the show? So I talked to him after the show. We set up an audition. I go to Bristol later that year, and lo and behold, the person that I'm doing the audition with is Joe Tessator and Brock Hewitt. So me, Joe, and Brock <laughs> do an audition, and literally I had no idea about TV. I mean, I had done some things with Fox, with Tom Arnold and John Sally, a couple, you know, when I was playing, but nothing this format, uh, doing highlights and et cetera. And Joe Tessitore literally uh, kind of walked me through it a couple hours before and even the night before about, hey, here's what we're going to do. Let's just talk. Don't worry about looking in the cameras, camera angles. All you do is be you and talk ball. And when I give you certain cues and I did it, they liked it. About three months later, I went to Austin, the Longhorn Network. I had to do an, an additional audition for Stephanie Dooley when she was out there. And they hired me on the SEC Network, man. And that's kind of kind of where it took off. And, you know, SEC Network studio a couple years, ABC with Mac Brown. And I was on the driving range April 2018, Richard. I was on the driving range at this golf course, Avila. And I'm trying to get this seven iron to turn over from right to left. And my phone rings. And, again, town office. Hey, we got your name. We think you'd be great to audition for Monday Night Football. And all, the only thing I said to myself was, who, who, who in the hell gave y'all my name for Monday Night Football? Like, I never even thought about it. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. No problem. I'll come do it. And I hung that phone up, and the only thing I thought about was, man, this 7 iron still won't turn over. Like, I, I, I wasn't thinking about it anymore. And over the next couple, uh, couple three weeks, I got a call from Jay Rossman. Hey, you're going to come audition. Here's kind of how it's going to go. And he kind of walked me through it. And I went into it, honestly, not having a single thought that I was going to get the job. Because, A, I had only done a handful of college games. 
And B, I really didn't inquire about this. Like they called me and I was like, okay, I'll go do it. And I walked into that booth in Bristol again, me and Joe Tessator. And he's like, Hey, let's just call the game, man. Like, don't worry about all the, the formats and all that. Let's just call football. And man, for the next two and a half hours, we called the Tennessee, I think it was the Tennessee Titan Kansas Chief playoff game. We called that game. And I walked out of there. He's like, man, that was great. I'm like, okay, cool. I went back to Tampa and thought, you know what? I did my best and I'm okay. I'll go back to doing ABC and then me and uh, Matt Brown and Kevin DeGonda will continue doing our thing. And I got a call a week later saying, hey, with what we heard, we want you to audition with someone else. And so, of course, I'm like, well, who? They're like, Jason Witten. Like, okay. So I go back up there uh, a week or so later and Jason and I are in a booth and you know, I could tell this was getting serious because all the brass was in the room next door. And I'm like, okay, this is this is a little different. And we called the same game again. And afterwards, I left that day thinking we were going to be in a three-man booth that day. Um, but lo and behold, they wanted to do something differently, and away we went. So that's how that thing – that's how we went from Tampa Radio to where I am now. Nice. I like that story. Um, one of the – you were um... – uh, every I should let sort of people know that um, every year prior to the start of the NFL season, all the different broadcast teams will hold a conference call to talk about the season, talk about broadcasting changes. Monday Night Football just held theirs. Uh, recently, I was on it. And Booger, I, I was struck by, you got asked about Andrew Luck and Andrew Luck retiring. And I was really struck by your, your answer and your thoughts on this. And I, I wanted to um, sort of have you go through this again with me on, this podcast because you I thought you really had great perspective on the sort of knucklehead brigade uh, that sort of questioned Andrew Luff's toughness, Andrew Luff's uh, pain threshold. I won't even get into the the, the, the total fools who somehow uh, proclaimed Andrew Luck like a representative of the millennial generation and thus he was doing what he was doing. But could you just again? Could could you give my listeners just a sense of, um, like for you, what it was like on Monday morning when you would wake up? Because the one thing I don't think television does well, and I'm not, I don't think my profession, digital and print, uh, really does well, is give the fans any kind of uh, perspective on how violent and painful the 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 National Football League is for those who play it. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough, man. And, and, you know, when I looked at Andrew Luck and him retiring at age 29, he's about to be 30, I'm like, just like everyone else, I'm like, man, I was initially shocked. And then I just thought about his career and how his career paralleled mine. Um, he followed a Hall of Famer. Um, he was always asked, you know, when he was going to get Indianapolis to the Super Bowl. He was the highest rated guy or the highest – uh, scouted guy since John Elway. So he had so many expectations put on him at a young age. And not only were the expectations high, but the injuries started to mount up also. And he would constantly get asked the same questions over and over. Are you, are you, when are you going to, you know, when are you going to be back? Is this injury? Is that injury? When are you going to get, you know, Indianapolis to the playoffs, the Super Bowl? This was the golden year and he's hurt again. And I just, man, I just thought, wow, how relatable is this? Because I looked at it. And how it paralleled my career. You know, I followed Warren South. And I was the defensive lineman picked in the 1999 draft. 
and the expectations were I was going to be the next out. And, you know, I was going to make Pro Bowls and Defensive Player of the Years, and I got hurt. You know, I played nine years, seven surgeries, got hurt a lot, was put on IR a couple times, and living in Tampa still. And I think Gerald McCoy felt this a little bit, which is one of the reasons why I think that the relationship between Tampa and McCoy kind of went apart because he was never once out. And I was victim to that also. I was never that guy, never the Hall of Famer. But you're often compared to the guy when you follow the guy, when you follow the Hall of Famer. But the injuries and the pain and all those things mount up. And I enjoyed football, man. I liked it. But I love my life after football. Because here's what the audience and here's what fans don't see. Every football player wakes up on Monday morning and the overwhelming majority of them have no idea what the first step they take is going to feel like on Monday morning. They have zero idea because we have so many train wrecks on Sunday when you play that when you put that foot down on Monday morning, you have no idea what it's going to feel like. And the rest of America or most of America doesn't, doesn't feel that way. Like you wake up in the morning, you know, okay, you don't even think about what it's going to feel like. You just wake up, hit the floor and you move about your day. Football players wake up like, man, is this going to hurt? Is that going to hurt? And that toll uh, wears on you mentally. It wears on you physically. And, and I think the biggest thing is this, is that football players, and I use football because it's the most physical sport. I'm sure hockey players may disagree, but it, it's one of the most physical sports, if not out there. And I think that when you look at it, there's a thin line between playing forever or playing and competing at a high level and how much of my future life am I willing to risk to play even longer to earn more money? Because let's be honest, like everybody's not Brett Favre. Like everybody's not playing for the love of the game for 22 years or whatever. Like I'm playing so I can provide for my family. There's not many jobs in America where I can make 5 to $10 million and play six months or, or do, what, do something for six months. Football allows you to do that. So that's what the overwhelming majority of the players are playing for. That's why their contract holdouts, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to your body, you have to find a thin line between what you're willing to risk, what you're willing um, what you're willing to risk of your, of your future life, and also how much pain you're willing to endure. And you, and you base that off the amount of money in your bank account. That's what we all do. And I think Andrew Luck's at a point, man, where – He's made over $100 million. Um, he's made Pro Bowls. He's went to the playoffs. He's done his best to succeed Peyton Manning, even though he never eclipsed what Manning does, has done. And I think he's at a point now where saying, man, why, what am I going to gain? Like, if, if I go on and win three more Super Bowls, am I ever going to eclipse being Brady Manning? So what am I really playing for? Like, why am I really taking my body and destroying it in the ringer just to satisfy other people. And I think you're going to see a lot of, of players really um, take a hard look at their life and career, and you're going to see more Andrew Luck and more Calvin Johnson and more Patrick Willis's, more Barry Sanders, where guys say, you know what? Like, I've earned enough money. I don't want to deal with the pain, and especially if I can't enjoy the life. Because what good does it do for a man to gain – hundreds of million dollars if you can't enjoy it when you get it. And I think there's a, there's a certain thing called the quality and enjoyment of life that I think a lot of NFL players are going to start to pay attention to. All right, a couple more here with Booger McFarlane. Booger, um, 
What kind of uh, interactions have you had with the NFL since you become a broadcaster? Specific, I, I think the, um, I think the public sort of understands that you're not getting calls from people in your position. Are not getting calls from Roger Goodell or someplace like that to say Booger say this or don't say this. But the truth is, the NFL has, while they don't make the decisions in terms of who is in the booth, there is a little bit of a sort of a sign-off by them. If they don't want a broadcaster in that position, they can certainly make it known to their network partners. They don't want that broadcaster. So uh, that's my sort of uh, long-winded intro to ask you, how do you navigate between that world of, um, of being f- feeling free to say whatever you want but also understanding that, you know, if you have some words uh, that the NFL doesn't like, the NFL can put some pressure on ESPN in that situation. I think first and foremost, Rich, you got to be honest. Um, I, I think, you know, I, it took me a while early in, in my career, you know, early when I was at the SEC Network, I had to learn this. Um, it's not often what you say, it's how you say it. And sometimes in my early career, in 2013, 2014, I didn't know how to say certain things. I would just come out and just, just call it what it is. I can still do that, but there's just a certain way you got to say things. Um, I, I think that, you know, to your point, um, you know, 345 Park Avenue weighs a lot when it comes to decisions that are made. Even though they don't control decisions at the networks, we are all partners. And anytime you have partners, partners are supposed to work together. So I, I'm, I'm very cognizant of that. Um, I have a really good relationship with Roger, a good relationship with Troy. Um, when we go and we visit up there, um, my relationship with Al, and more importantly, my relationship with these, some of the owners around the league. You know, I've had really good conversations, uh, you know, with the Glazer family in Tampa, uh, Mr. Jones, Mr. Bidwell, uh, different owners around the league to know because ultimately what they want is they want somebody that's going to a be honest and b not just be a guy that's going to be a cheerleader for the league because you don't want that guy. What you want somebody is someone is that can that can also talk about the good and talk about some of the areas where the, the league can improve on and off the field. And I think when you do that, when the conversation is healthy that way, you get a respect factor. And I'd rather be respected than liked, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't, I don't want people to just, man, I just like that guy. It's cool to be liked, but if you gave me a choice between being respected and liked, I'd rather be respected. And I think how you earn respect is, A, being honest, and, and B, being able to get your point across in a manner that doesn't offend people and doesn't turn people away. Because I, I, I think we're all big boys. Like, we're all adults. You know, we got to be able to deal with Good and bad, we got to be able to deal with the accolades and the criticism that we get. And so uh, I just go about it trying to earn uh, not only the people at 345 Park Avenue, but the owners who are the ones that ultimately employ Roger Goodell, Troy Vincent, and so on and so forth, earn their respect. And if I do that, then, then for me, um, I'm well on my way to, 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 to conquering what you asked, which, which is how do you do that? I think you just got to earn their respect and be honest in, in your – uh, analyzation of the game and the things that are both on and off the field. Booger, this is something that always interests me. Um, 
you've you won two Super Bowls. You were part of two Super Bowl winning teams, mm-hmm. and I'm always interested in how much relevancy you think um, that means when it comes to broadcasting gigs. For example, as I mentioned before, you know, if you're Philip Rivers, you're you're sort of super famous. You're a prominent quarterback in the league. Even if you didn't win Super Bowls, if you show interest in broadcasting, every network is going to have a conversation with you. Um, you know, if you're whatever star running back X, even if you didn't win a Super Bowl, people are going to know your name. Uh, you, as you mentioned, you're a defensive player, but you do you were part of two Super Bowl teams, and I always think to myself that while I can't really give you the exact definition of like what it means monetarily. I do think having that connection to a Super Bowl winner always seems to mean something when it comes to broadcasting executives. From your position, and it's it's sort of an intentionally open-ended question, but ha- has that meant something in terms of potential employers being interested in you merely because you were part of these two teams? Uh, I, I think it means something. I think it gives you validation about A, teamwork, about B, uh, setting a goal, achievement, covering something. Uh, I, I think it gives credence to your knowledge of being at the highest point, and in my case, twice, of a profession. Because I think that all employers are trying to get their company to that point. You know, football players have an opportunity to reach the pinnacle every year. I think for a certain, um, for certain companies, they get the opportunity to do the same thing also which is reach that point, reach the level, reach a high level of achievement every year. And so I think it, it weighs a lot. Um, I don't like to beat people across the head with it, but I do like people to know that I've, I've played a long time and, and, and I've done a lot of things in the game. And my level of achieve, achievement in football doesn't guarantee me success in my broadcast career, but I think what it does, it it gives just a little insight into my work ethic, my perseverance, uh, how I go about doing my job to know that I've done something that not a lot of people have done, which is win a championship, oh, by the way, winning two. And to your point that you started the question with about, you know, star quarterback or Phillip Rivers, why is that? Is it, is it just, just perception? Because it, like, it's one of the things that bothers me, that had bothered me a lot. I've studied, right. this, I've studied this profession over the last several years, even before I got into it. And we are quick, when I say we, I mean in, in America and all these different companies, we are so quick to put the biggest name on television. How many times have we seen the biggest name on television, Richard, fail? So I, I guess I would ask Correct. you. I, I would ask you that. Why are companies so enamored with just big names instead of just hiring the right guy? Uh, I'll tell you. I mean, it's a great discussion. I've discussed it many times in this podcast. Written about it many times. So I think it's multifold. One, as you know, part of this business—not part—a big part of this big business is relationships. And so, who do the producers and broadcasters meet with every week in the National Football League? They meet with coaches. They meet with quarterbacks maybe one other uh, skill player on offense, maybe one defensive player. So the people who are always meeting with the networks are the quarterbacks, and that's where the relationship starts. So these producers, broadcasters go back to their bosses and say, hey, you know, Philip Rivers, Drew Brees, uh, Andrew Luck, these guys are awesome. You know, if they ever decide to go in broadcasting, let's talk to them. So that, Booger, that's part one. Part two, the league markets itself how? doesn't market itself with... Booger McFarland versus Ronnie Lott, it markets itself Manning versus Breeze, 
uh, Brady versus Baker Mayfield. So the whole marketing element and the whole marketing aspect of the game is quarterbacks. And then lastly, and this is where I, I think you'd agree with me, I think some of it is kind of stereotyping and laziness. There's just an it's easy to get the biggest name and to think that you could sort of win the hire on the press release. But you know this. The reality is the people who are great in this profession are the ones who work at it the hardest, the ones who put their head down, do the research, do the prep, and when they go on air, they are just working for the audience. I think you've been great at that. Lewis Riddick is great at that. Um, uh, are there star players who have been uh, who have turned out to be great analysts? Absolutely. I love Barkley. I think Romo's great. But to your point, I, I can give you 50 people who were all pros in their profession who turn out to be total busts in sports broadcasting. So I think a lot of it just has to do with, I'll be blunt, uh, executives with a lack of creativity when it comes to hires because I think the one of the easiest things to do is to say you've hired famous person X, put it on a press release, and you know you're going to get you're going to get attention and media coverage for it. That's, that, that's at least off the top of my head. That's sort of my thought process there. Well, you know what I would say, Richard, is, is that uh, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, I, I also realize that. And it, it's why that I, I think, A, a lot of people are going to be watching uh, me in this role. Because let's be honest, like there hasn't been a lot of people who look like me that have been in this role. And what do I mean by look like me? Correct. I mean, A, an African-American. B, a defensive tackle. Uh, C, a country boy from Louisiana. That's what I am at my core. Like all three of those things are who you're going to get when you get Booger McFarland. And so I, I think that um, is, is there some pressure? Uh, no, I don't look at it as pressure, but I do realize that there are a lot of people uh, who haven't been given the opportunity because their name hasn't been big enough. And – I think that for me to carry a little bit of the stick for them uh, that, hey, you can find somebody who starts at the bottom. I started in local radio, as I said earlier on this podcast, and worked my way up. I think there are a lot of people who are really, really good. And I'm not down in the people with the big name. I'm not down in them. I just know, as you say, we can name way more people with a huge name that were unsuccessful uh, than you can find or you can name guys who started at the bottom and just grinded their way up throughout who have become successful. And so I think the weight of that uh, is, is something that I realized from the moment uh, that they named me the lead analyst is something that I, I look forward to, man. And, and, and I know that for me, regardless of uh, what anyone says, I know there are people out there that are, are going to have more opportunities because of the opportunity that my bosses have been given, have given me, and, you know, I'm just going to try to go out and make the best of it. Yeah, we'll say this about your place. Uh, and I know, you know, you've, you've, uh, we've, you know you've, you've, we've interacted on social media and we've certainly emailed each other. Uh, you know, I, I, I try to be very honest sort of in my feelings. There are things about ESPN that you can criticize, including sometimes when they hire people, I feel like just for name only, and they end up ha honestly having it handed to them. At the same time, the company is about as good as anybody at its level in terms of hiring people that are not necessarily the biggest names. You know, yeah. I mentioned like Lewis Riddick. Uh, ESPN is very good about putting people in non-traditional spots, uh, putting Doris Burke in an analyst position for the NBA, yep. Carol Lawson. Like the company is willing to do stuff that goes against what has been the tradition. And I think that's really important because I'm a believer in a lot of the tradition is absolute bullshit. That just basically started in the 50s and 60s and 70s 
was done a certain way, quite frankly, done by a lot of white executives in their 40s and 50s. So I like, I like a lot of what ESPN does. They're willing to take risks, even if the risk doesn't work. And in a sense, and this is no pejorative to you, you are a risk for the exact things that you mentioned. You're not some star quarterback. Uh, you're from Louisiana. You're not, you know, you're not, you're not some polished sort of figure from like, you know, Hollywood soundstage that a lot of these quarterbacks sort of come out of central casting. And so I think that's good. Um, I, I think I'm going to be really interested to see how you and Joe do this year because it's now you two guys in the booth next to each other. You could look at each other. You see the nonverbal cues. And you like each other away from the broadcast, which, uh, and that's what I'll end on on this. I always feel is so important, Booger. You know, so many times I talk to broadcasters and I ask, like, sort of how do you get chemistry? And they, they rarely say, like, you sort of figure it out on air. They almost always say you got to figure it out off air and then it becomes natural on air. Yeah, you know, a couple of things that you can't fake. One, friendship, and two, whether you like somebody. Like, to me, that's hard to fake, especially when, you, when you're going to be with somebody consistently over a four- to five-month period. And I think that uh, you're spot on when you say that. I think Joe and I, man, developed uh, just a friendship because Joe showed interest in me. Like, he didn't have to call me before my initial audition. He could have just said, okay, who am I auditioning today? All right, let's show up. Let's get it done. But he took an interest in me and an interest in his job that, hey, I want to be the most and best prepared that I can. And so that always meant a lot to me. And, you know, then we developed the friendship, the cohesiveness over the course from 2013 until now uh, that, you know, we can have fun conversations. We can have difficult conversations. We can have uh, conversations that are that are totally um, oblivious to football. I just think that when you can have a, a conversation with someone and you can do it and discuss opinions, varying opinions, and you can do it, um, whether you guys agree or disagree, and when that conversation is over, there is absolutely zero change in the relationship, then you have a true, true friendship and a true relationship. And I think that's where Joe and I are. And I'm looking forward to it because I think that, um, A, we all heard the criticism last year. Okay, let's just be honest. Everybody heard it. Everybody dealt with it in the way that they wanted to deal with it, et cetera. Now I think we're looking forward to 2019. How can we do what it is we signed up to do, which is uh, a, a traditional broadcast where we broadcast football? We're not trying to be – you know, new and innovative, as much credit as I give to our bosses and, and the, the innovative and creative people at ESPN, I think we're so excited right now to just, A, look at the great schedule we got, B, let's call football. Like, let's not try to do anything more than what we've been hired to do. And I think where we're going to differ is that my personality and Joe's personality are automatically going to be different than people at other networks. And so I think just our – ability to be natural with, with each other is going to be different. And hopefully this we'll, we'll find it um, an enjoyable listen for three, three and a half hours, you know, throughout the fall, because um, it's going to be fun. I think, I think it's going to be um, enlightening and more than anything, I think we're going to have good football games. And, and I think you can give Jimmy Pataro and everyone at ESPN a lot of credit for that, for bridging the relationship between ESPN and NFL. And so I, I think overall, just from relationship wise, company wise, to where we are in the booth. I, I think everyone feels really comfortable where we are. Booger, in your position, you're not supposed to root, but you got the Browns twice in the first five weeks. You, you, you may want to root for them to get off to a nice start, because if they do, 
You got, you got a nice schedule. Yeah, uh, Booger yeah, McFarland. Go ahead. What's that? No, I, I said, yeah, we do. The Browns, uh, I think the Browns are going to be pretty good. I think the Browns, first and foremost, they have to learn how to win. And it's kind of like the example I always use. You know, you've been doing the sports media thing for a long time, and your knowledge and information is really, really good. But how do you take that and convey that to your audience? You probably started doing it the first time. You probably weren't as good as you are now, even though you probably were as talented back then. And so you had to learn how to use that talent to convey your message. Well, the Browns have to do the same thing. They have all this talent. Now, how do they take that talent and turn it into wins where they can learn how to win football games. That's going to be the exciting thing, and I think they'll be better uh, probably the second half of the season, even though they may be a little bit banged up. I think they'll be better the second half than they are the first half. Yeah, I'm really I'm looking forward to them. I think they're they're such an interesting story this year. Booger McFarland is the Monday Night Football Analyst for ESPN with Joe Testor, obviously. They um, get their season going on, uh, let's make sure what we have this exact date here, uh, Monday, September 9th. That is the traditional ESPN uh, doubleheader. Uh, the Tessator McFarland team has the Texans at the Saints. And then after that, Broncos, uh, Raiders with uh, the aforementioned Lou Riddick, Steve Levy, Bob Greasy. Uh, Booger, um, I wish you the best of luck this year for Monday Night Football. You are correct. The schedule is really, really good. Um, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch you and Joe do your thing this year, um, as a two person, uh, as a two person team, we've been talking about doing this podcast for a while and, uh, and I appreciate you making the time. Thanks so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast. Anytime, Richard, man. Appreciate it, man. Let it come back sometime. All right. Back in the studio. My thanks to Booger McFarland for his time. Um, if you like these conversations, previous our, my previous podcast guest was Gus Johnson of Fox Sports discussing um, his career, how he approaches college football on the eve of this year's college football season, as well as Bruce Feldman and Stu Mandel, co-host of um, their own podcast, as well as my colleagues at The Athletic. We did a little college football roundtable. Prior to that, had a discussion on ESPN's NBA coverage and the future of uh, the immediate future of women's sports coverage. Uh, in the U.S. Before that, Don Van Natta of ESPN, Chelsea James of the Washington Post, moving from the Nationals to covering Kamala Harris's campaign. And then just go through all the podcasts. Again, if you're interested in this, we had a boxing roundtable a couple weeks ago with Mike Coppinger and Lance Pugmire, Conrad Thompson on his wrestling empire, Bob Lee at the end of his ESPN tenure, Taylor Twelman on uh, ESPN's uh, soccer coverage and global soccer coverage as well. All right, my thanks as always to Patrick Antonetti. Thank you to uh, Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott, and the rest of the uh, folks at Cadence 13. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast.